0: From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. As the first two decades of the 21st century come to an end, Australia is going to be forced to confront its place as a middle power and embrace an electorate that is markedly different to its parliament. George Megalogenis on what's likely to happen in the 2020s.
1: What do, I, what do I do? I put these on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got to remember what I'm
0: doing. What do um, you eat for breakfast, George?
1: A coffee and a croissant. Very Higgins.
0: <laughs> George, you've written this piece considering Australia's place in the world from the perspective of these first two decades of the 21st century. How would you describe the difference between those two decades?
1: The first decade of the 21st century, I think we could all agree, was party time for Australia. Uh, we were moving into what was then the second decade of our record growth run. And the Howard government was in charge then, we remember, and uh, it didn't know what to do with its surpluses. So it just kept writing checks to the electorate. So every voter that complained would get a top up from Howard to sort of keep them on the coalition side. I think the Do Not Disturb sign was up for Australia as a political system and a culture and a society.
0: George Megalogenis is an author and journalist. He contributed to the latest issue of The Monthly.
1: The second decade of the 21st century, which is technically our third decade of uninterrupted growth as an economy, very disruptive. And where you draw the line of where the first decade end and the second decade began is the GFC. And the GFC triggered a number of things, the first one being a heroic escape, but they got no political credit for it, as we know. There'll be economic students uh, for the next 50 years still studying globally this case study. And what happened? after that. Uh, Labor lost the plot on climate change. Rudd and Gillard, that circus begins. Tony Abbott becomes opposition leader by a single vote. So we've had a pretty chaotic period in our public life and also in our culture uh, since about 2008 and But the other big thing that changed is the great power rivalry between America and China. And that first decade, when we think about it being party time for us, that was the last decade where both America and a challenger, a rival, were both going to work on our behalf. And the disruption they're causing in the second decade of the 21st century is affecting us in ways I think we still haven't figured out.
0: Before we get to those bigger geopolitical questions, what about other domestic issues that we've faced as we've moved through these first two decades of this century? Yeah,
1: that's a... This is a very, very micro observation, but it's the big structural weakness in the domestic economy. The run-up in household debt in the first decade of the 21st century was concerning economists because whilst the budget was in surplus in that first decade, people thought we could sort of bluff our way out of any um, state, and obviously we did with the GFC. And this is one of the prices we had to pay to stay out of that global recession is that the housing market continued to be ramped up. So the housing market was stoked, restoked and then stoked a third time just to keep people's heads above water. The thing that sets us apart as you go into a third decade of uninterrupted growth is we're running up huge household debts and all the traditional tools of economic management, the budget, fiscal policy, uh, monetary policy and also the way the exchange rate works. Most of those things are now corrupted. They're corrupted because the global economy itself is unbalanced. And we don't have many tools left in the event of another downturn. Households are carrying a lot more debt into this cycle than they did in all previous cycles. And it's going to be very difficult to put a floor under the economy if there's a downturn, when people are already indebted to the eyeballs. And you can't stimulate consumption by traditional means. You can't protect them in the way governments used to be able to protect them anymore. So I think we've been asleep at the wheel for so long now that the things that we could have conceivably worried about in the first decade are going to really hurt us at the end of the second going into the third.
0: Hmm. So, George, let's move back to that bigger geopolitical question. China, the United States, where does Australia fit?
1: Strangely, Australia has probably been the first of of the developed nations that's caught up. the nature of the challenge. And it's a dual challenge. One, America no longer wants to be a moral citizen in the global order, setting the rules for international trade and diplomacy, and pretty much behaving on evidence base. Now, of course, we know that they've gone bonkers since the election of Trump, but Trump is, in effect, he's not the cause. Their system has been convulsing for quite a while now, their political system, and their sense of security in the world is threatened. And traditionally, Americans, when they do feel threatened, they withdraw. And that's more dangerous, as we know from our international relations history. When America withdraws, the globe becomes much more destable. The vacuum gets filled by countries not as big as them, countries not as dynamic as them, and by leaders who are crazier. The primary problem Australia has, I think the United States is the primary problem. The primary problem for Australia is to keep America engaged in Asia. And China isn't the primary problem. And I think this is where it's been more, obviously much more complicated because we are the only Western nation with a trade balance with them and with a near-perfect economic exchange, which is we dig for them, send them our rocks, and we get their people in return. And it's sort of dirt-for-brains exchange is the way I tend to describe it. In that first decade of the 21st century, it was easy to be you know, super optimistic about Australia's future because we were getting the cream of Chinese emigrants And all we have to do in return for them is dig stuff for them, which they pay a premium for because they've elevated the price of minerals globally. So, as I say, near perfect situation to be in. The bigger challenge is the structural shift in China's attitude to the rest of the world. And the Chinese from about 2012, 2013 began to press more aggressively to become number one. Ambition. And it is ambition. And I think this is one of the reasons why America is having its brain snap they don't feel that they have the, uh, the sort of institutional patience and confidence to be able to beat China in the long run. The Chinese, as we know, have been pressing their influence onto our soil and they've been contesting the loyalty of their emigrants. So Chinese-Australians are sort of pawns in a loyalty contest. We're the host, obviously. We assume that somebody comes to Australia, they want to become Australian. The Chinese Communist Party views every expat Chinese as their person. There's a second level, and that's the strategic level at which the Chinese are investing. Ports, infrastructure, telecommunications. So they're looking at hard and soft infrastructure. They're looking at tapping into a nation state's critical infrastructure. They look at the way the Americans have been behaving over the last 60 or 70 years and wondering why everyone's having a whinge about them pressing. But, of course, from our perspective, the Americans never took ports us. The Americans never go on campus trying to micromanage uh, history courses to present their country in the best possible light so that's the test and Australia weirdly is one of the first you know high-income nations that is beginning to think again about the transaction we'll be right back
0: George, in your piece for The Monthly about politics in the past two decades, you've written about a series of domestic shocks. What are you talking about there?
1: A domestic shock is something that your system imposes on itself, or there's something that's occurring domestically which hasn't been addressed. And the combination of those two things is the absence of leadership in Australia for the last 10 years. So when we moved from Howard to Rudd in 2007, there seemed to be an understanding that we were turning a page. And even though Kevin had pitched himself as a younger version of John Howard, we were still looking at becoming a more open, more engaged nation in the region. And we were looking at fixing some of the foundational problems. Indigenous recognition, for example. Kevin Rudd apologised. We look to be re-engaging on climate change. He signs the Kyoto Protocol. You know, we dodged the GFC. We weren't in a bad position to be able to step up to what it means to be a middle power in the 21st century. You sort of look around the world, there are only two other countries that ethnically are cut the way we are, is Canada and New Zealand, and both those countries seem a lot more comfortable expressing their uniqueness. Neither Canada nor New Zealand seem to be looking back to the old country and wanting to do their Brexit, whereas we're sort of umming and ahhing, going, do we want to go more Trump? Do we want to go Brexit? Do we want to pretend this isn't happening? Do we want to yell at that person? That seems to be what's been happening in our culture there's been a massive step down in trust in both government and the institution of democracy since 2010. Since the Rudd-Gillard rivalry, we've seen trust step down at each election to lows not seen since the constitutional crisis of the mid-70s. Now, the thing about the mid-70s, the public started to act out as well. We're not at that second point yet, but we're certainly at that first point and the precondition for a breakdown in basically the way people relate to one another, the 70s style episode will probably come if there is a recession. We, whatever happens at this next downturn, we, we start off from a position of weakness, not strength. We went into the last one from a position of strength and we're able to think our way out of it. We go into the next one with a political system that's been in denial about too many things denial of the very reason for existing as a government, which is long-term strategic thinking and planning. We haven't been doing any of that for a long time. It's going to be very difficult to see the day that a government needs to address the nation and say, something terrible is underway and here's how we're going to fix it. Do you listen to them? Can you imagine, whether it was Morrison or Shorten or Josh Frydenberg or Chris Bowen, could you imagine any of them having the electorate's confidence to be able to nurse them through a downturn? Back in the old days, of course, Bob Hawke could address the nation, Paul Keating could address the nation. John Howard could explain and explain and explain with Tim Fisher at his side why he had to take guns off people after Port Arthur. The operating environment doesn't permit that sort of um, international crisis and counselling from the government.
0: So, George, what happens? What about the next decade? What does that look like?
1: The clash between China and the United States is forcing us to think a little more independently. And, in fact, I'm weirdly more confident that the politicians are sufficiently overwhelmed and humbled by the nature of their challenges. They may start to think a little more pragmatically, coherently. The decade coming, the 2020s, is the first decade we can see clearly in our demography is not a white decade. When you look at where demography is moving across the Western world, everyone is sort of moving towards a version of our ethnicity, which is Eurasian. Predominant new arrivals from the two big rising nations in the world, China and India. Because it's not a white century anyway. It's an Asian century. And that's the big identity shock. And I still have major problems with the cohort that both sides attract to parliamentary politics. But the parliament itself is going to reflect this ethnic face sooner or later. There may be a bit of a lag to it, but elections are more likely than not towards the end of the coming decade to be decided in the southeast, not the north. And that in itself is going to afford some correction. Scott Morrison, he may be the elected representative of the country, but he's not representative of the country. And weirdly, it doesn't mean that you need a Chinese-Australian or an Indian, you just need somebody who can talk to both old and new Australia. And that person, whether it's a man or a woman, can go to an international forum and say... Have a look at my people because they're all your people too and we're running the greatest social experiment on the planet at the moment and we're still a role model for openness. But that sort of presentation is a presentation I think intuitively Australians would like to see because it'll make them feel safer. It also won't embarrass them on the international stage and we've got a better chance of not being that country if the parliament looks like the people.
0: George, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au.
1: For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel.
0: I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very that's... pro-therapy. I'm yeah, this. yeah <laughs> if, that's, I... if that's what you're using writing for.
1: I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Elsewhere in the news, almost 120 bush and grass fires are burning across New South Wales, and almost half of those are uncontained with more than 2,000 firefighters being supported by aircraft. Communities on the south coast have been evacuated due to increased wind and fire risk. The Karawan blaze, which has already burnt more than 11,500 hectares, is burning out of control north of Batemans Bay. And South Australian man Fu Tran has been found alive after going missing for almost two weeks in the Northern Territory outback. Tran and two others were reported missing on November 23rd, after leaving for an afternoon trek. Northern Territory Police said the man was found by a pastoralist on a station south of Alice Springs while he was conducting a bore check on a property. The search effort is now focused on finding the final member of the group, Claire Hockridge. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Collass. See you Thursday.